Well, hello. My guest this week is Constant Derricks, a good friend of mine who I met two years ago when the book that we're going to be discussing first came out. But what you should know about Constance is she's actually a high school dropout, a college dropout, sorry, high school <laughs> graduate, a college dropout yeah. who then was a successful broker at Merrill Lynch. And through her consulting firm, she now works with senior boards and executives in helping them to navigate high stake matters. And she goes by the moniker of the decision doctor. So, Constance, tell me more about the decision doctor. Yeah, that's that's funny because people will say to me, "Well, how did you decide to call yourself that?" And my answer is, <laughs> "I didn't. <laughs> I didn't." Um, the work I do with boards and senior executives is very much around the uh, interpersonal process of decision making, helping leaders understand the, the cognitive and the emotional and the psychological dynamics that go into a decision. I mean, we all like to think we're purely rational creatures, but it turns out that's not true. Um, but sometimes people would say to me, how do you describe what you do? And I would talk for way too long and it was you know, kind of boring. And then one day a client looked at me and he goes, you know what you do? And I said, well, I think you're about to tell me. And he said, you help us make great decisions that we can't afford to get wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that applies to CEO selection or mergers and acquisitions. And, and so I thought, okay, decision doctor. And so I trademarked it. I love it. So from college dropout to successful broker, but then a PhD in or, uh, clinical psychology. Yes. So what was it that piqued your curiosity that caused you to go back to grad school and study psychology? Yeah, I had to go to undergrad first. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I had to finish my undergrad, but I was yeah. working at Merrill Lynch and um, I noticed that my clients were Many of them were making very irrational decisions about their money, and they made them based on, you know, what their neighbor George said or their son-in-law wanted to borrow a half a million dollars to start a business. And they were swayed by very emotional things. And I got to wondering about it. And so I started reading about decision science, and then I started reading about psychology and how emotions affect decisions. Um, And then I asked myself, am I like that? Oh, and that was a hard, right. That's a hard question. Like, wait a minute. Is it just those other people or am I? And it turns out that the things that I studied and that I speak and write about now are very human processes. And so I was scratching my head about this and I said, you know, I don't really like being a broker anyway. So how about I go back and study human behavior. And so I was vacillating um, and settled on clinical psychology because it's the program of study that keeps you in school the longest. (laughs) That really was my criteria. Talk about silly. Um, But I learned a lot and I studied decision science at the same time and also organizational psych. And and that is it. So when we first met in 2018, your first book, High Stakes Leadership, Right. Leading through crisis with courage, judgment, and fortitude. Yeah. And I know we had a great conversation then, but could you even imagine when you wrote it (laughs) that we would all be living and leading in a crisis environment? No. Um, I mean, I have a part of my background is working in hospital settings, and I consulted to an infectious disease department, um, actually more than one now that I think about it. 
And there, there's always been an awareness on my part that we, we, humankind, was at some point going to experience a pandemic. Mm-hmm. It would probably be viral. Mm-hmm. And, but we didn't know. And so it's sort of this vague thread out there that epidemiologists are experts in this. They know mm-hmm. far more about it than I did. So I, I thought that. But when I thought about crisis, I thought about things like, you know, an acquisition that a company does that goes in the ditch. And I've worked on a number of those. I thought about, um, you know, what companies do when their CEO dies suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was thinking more, I was thinking about financial crises because I was actually a broker, um, during one that was pretty scary, um, and actually led one of our clients to, um, come into the Miami office of Merrill Lynch with a gun and, Mm -hmm. and kill the office manager. So that was a crisis. Um, I had no idea, but the, the great thing is that what we know from, more serious global crises like this one, like the Spanish flu, like wars, like how people um, are able to sur- not just survive through a war, mm-hmm. through through a pandemic, but actually be okay. And so I've gone back to that very basic research on trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, so a lot of the work I'm doing right now is advising leaders on what's, going on with people psychologically in the pandemic, uh, because a lot of leaders are very worried about their people. Um, not just can we keep them employed, but are they mentally all right? So do you see crises then? I mean, the title of the book is High Stakes Leadership. So right. the, the difference or the step between high stakes and crises, how do you differentiate between the two or do we even need to? Um, I think high stakes can be something that's less dire. So high stakes would be, I think of high stakes as you need to get a decision right now because it's going to affect what happens. And a crisis is you're dealing with something that is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, but I don't know that it's a real important distinction. For me, the important point is that leaders, either in high stakes or in a crisis, uh, really need to do very similar things. You know, they need to be calm. They need to be clear. Um, they need to connect. And I Mm -hmm. use the word connect, not communicate. Um, Mm -hmm. if I hear the word communicate one more time, I might, (laughs) might have a strong reaction, Um, but leaders need to connect with people. And in a crisis, it's particularly, it's important all the time. It's very important in a crisis. I agree. And when we're now at this point, connecting yeah. through a two-dimensional medium like video, yes. um, it does make it more challenging, which comes back to the need for calmness, the need for clarity. Yes. And the first of the three elements in your book, the need for courage, Yes, which is interesting. So yes. start with courage. Yes. Say more about that. Yeah. I started with courage when I wrote the book um, because I believe that if people don't have courage, if leaders don't have courage, then they don't have the ability to learn as much about what's happening around them, including how they are impacting other people, how Mm -hmm. other people see them. Um, So they're left with just, you know, the echo chamber of their admirers, for example. But it takes courage to allow in information about yourself that's not flattering. But leaders need to know all of that. 
And after I wrote this book, um, in the book, I talk about courage is contagious. Courage is not just for special people. It can be learned. It can be taught. And just last fall um, in London, I met a researcher from the University of Virginia, Jim Dedert, who's a, a professor there, who has studied how people learn to be courageous. And I was so excited uh, yes. to, to meet him and get to hear him talk about his, his research. Um, and then um, I also uh, have been interested in the work that Brene Brown does oh. on courage and vulnerability. Yes. So. She's saying, and her research demonstrates what I was saying in my book, although I didn't cite her research, I'm citing it now, mm -hmm. that courage is something that people can learn. If you, if you are courageous in one aspect of your life, you can uh, strengthen that mm -hmm. so that it's um, in other areas. If you think about a number of corporate crises that have happened, Boeing, Volkswagen, GM, mm -hmm. where there's a culture of you tamp down things that are wrong. And you look yeah. at the research Amy Edmondson at Harvard has done on the fearless organization. It, leaders have to be courageous enough so they find out what's going wrong and what's going right. Yeah. And that's it. It's the, the lack of candor can be yeah. one of those symptoms that you aren't courageous enough yes. either to speak up or to be quiet and listen to those tough counter points of view so that you can then move forward together. That's right. And for leaders to understand that the onus is on them to create the culture where people can speak up, because if you are courageous enough to speak up and you get your head chopped off for it, A, you're disinclined to speak up, and B, word gets around Yes, this is, scary, this is a scary place. You know, you don't want to tell the CEO that his pants are on yeah. fire. Oh, and sometimes they need to know. But with the budding, budding paparazzi with the, the cell phones and social media, you never know when it's going to come back to bite you. Right. And I've certainly seen leaders, you talk about courage being a skill you can learn, yes. who will go to their team once and say, hey, Constance, tell me the truth, give me the feedback and get crickets because of the learned past behavior. You're not yes. going to speak up. That's and right. then they go, well, I tried. They, they can't. Right. And That's right. It's not. It's something you've got to keep doing so that people will hear you, believe you, trust you, and then do it. And so the only current. way they're going to trust you is if you keep asking. And then when you hear something that's surprising, scary, um, worrisome, maybe it's about you, that you don't freak out, that you, mm -hmm. that you show people you know, I do want to know about that. And, and, you know, what do you think we ought to do about that? Or here's, here, here are my thoughts, but it's the, it's the negative reaction. If you think about it, the leader who has the least amount of courage is the most likely to be aggressive and defensive in the face of, mm -hmm. of that. And that's why I think it's important for people to think about courage and developing courage in themselves and encouraging it in others. And Jim's work, which, um, you know, it would take me too long to summarize it, but his work is, is lovely. And Brene Brown's work mm -hmm. where they actually have demonstrated that people can learn to be more courageous. Which comes really to your cool. second point in the book, judgment. Yes. You know, I mean, 
<laughs> is this the appropriate way to move forward for this situation and this person? Yes. And, and you had a great phrase that I loved, which is, how come smart people do stupid things? Because <laughs> we're all, we've all done it. Yes. So tell yes. me about the judgment and what goes into yes. being not judgmental, but Correct. Effective judgment. Oh, correct. And and sometimes judgmental is called for, uh, but you need the judgment to know, you know, when, uh, you know, so, so the judgment piece for me is, is around evaluating things, um, that include multiple ways of looking at a situation. So what are the individual characteristics showing up in situation A? What are the contextual things? Someone asked me the other day, um, a colleague actually asked me, she said, um, tell me about um, risky behavior. Tell me about the difference between people who are risk tolerant and not risk tolerant. Like I know how to measure it, but I don't know how they get there. And she was asking me a lot of um, broader questions. And I said, well, first of all, you're thinking of risk behavior as a totally individual thing. And it isn't. Mm. Sometimes we're more willing to be risky in our behaviors than others. Judgment is what you need to say, you know, if I try stand up paddle boarding, the risk is low unless I'm in a riptide, the risk is low. And and the reward might be that I'll have a super fun afternoon, but I'm not going to apply the same evaluation yeah. to every to every circumstance. And my concern about what happens with good research when it gets popularized is it gets simplified. And so it leads people to give advice like leaders need to be, you know, they can't be risk averse. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there's some times when you should be cautious. Yeah. yeah. So judgment gives you that finer tuning. Yeah. And it was interesting when we were first at the shelter at home, I have a teenage son, he's 19. And so his risk tolerance for the yeah. pandemic and his life experience of it was different to where I was coming from. Yes. And neither is right or wrong because we aren't the experts. All we can do is be guided. But we had to come to an agreement around where were we going to meet in the middle or yes. actually slightly closer towards mum's requirements. Yes, of course. In terms of how we were entering and leaving the house and the, and the, the steps we were going to take to keep each other and others safe. Yes. So that and would be judgment and the risk. That's judgment. Yeah. Them. And your judgment is informed by a, an experience set that is longer and deeper than his. Uh, we won't go into the development of the frontal lobe in young men, but anyway, <laughs> there's that, there, there's that part of it too, but also you're a smart person. And so your judgment is also informed by what you're hearing from experts in a very uncertain situation. So it's, okay. it's multi, it, there are multiple dimensions to it. Okay. So I know in the book, you've got the third element. So why are courage and judgment not enough? Surely the courage to take the hill and the judgment of how fast we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Done. And the, yeah. And just the sheer guts, like, yeah, yeah we're going to do it. Um, the fortitude piece um, for me is so important because oftentimes things that are really transformative where you get very good results require an iterative process. So let's use the pandemic as an example. 
So we have this COVID-19, um, you know, it's highly contagious and it's lethal for some people. And we don't really know. We know demographically and categorically who it's risky for, but on an individual basis, it's hard to know Mm -hmm. because sometimes the outcomes are unpredictable. Um, And so you need the fortitude to stay the course, to keep using your courage and judgment and not give in. So if you think about all the things in business and in, in healthcare and in our lives that where we're going to do something that might, might be brave. You know, we've used good judgment, but if we don't stay with it, we won't get the result that we seek. Mm -hmm. So there's two sides though. There's the, how do I fill my bucket and maintain my energy? And how do I then as a leader without communicating, but with communication, inspire others? So what's your advice for those two sides of that same equation? How do I maintain my energy and how do I inspire and engage others? Right. Well, I'm glad you asked (laughs) (laughs) because I was just uh, recording a video about, about uh, what are the psychological dynamics that are going on for people. And um, one of the things that I'm seeing some leaders do, it's well intended, but it's, it's ill-advised. Um, is that they are beating the drum of let's innovate, let's be resilient, everybody just work remotely, it'll all be the same. And they get now none of the none of them say this to me. This is my evaluation. They get scared when people look like this, you know, on their eighth Zoom call of the day, or they show up in their they're yeah. disheveled. You know, they don't, people, we're getting, we're all getting on Zoom calls these days and we don't look like we do in the office. Um, you know, I certainly mm-hmm. don't look exactly like I do when I show up in a client's office. I'm a little bit more casual these days. And so they get nervous. Uh, somebody's not as responsive. Somebody is, um, you know, drops the ball. And they are having kind of extreme interpretations of these behaviors. So what I'm saying to them is you've got to ease up. You've got to ease up on yourself and you've got to ease up on people that some of the behaviors we're seeing are people's, uh, it's a reflection of people's adaptation. So we're all adapting to something very abnormal adaptation takes energy. So it's no surprise if anybody watching this can relate to, you know, sometimes I have a day or two where I feel really tired or I'm grouchy or I don't want to do that thing. My boss asked me to do It's stupid anyway. You know, what are they just noticing things about ourselves that are different or noticing things in others. So leaders have to be able to hit the pause button for themselves and get support, you know, not burn the candle at both ends. Um, And then passion, isn't it for ourselves and others? I know early in the pandemic, I was, people were saying, what emotions, you know, the change curve and all this, and it shows it as a nice neat curve. And I would say it's more like a roller coaster. And as for emotions, I experienced all of them sometimes at the same time. Of course. There are days where motivation AKA fortitude. I've thought, ah, no, I don't want. Right. Exactly. Catching it and just helping yourself, giving yourself the grace to 
have that pause, but being able to get back to it in whatever form the it needs to be. I think that's a good way to say it. I think that's a good way to say it. Give yourself grace and recognize that the unusual feelings you have or thoughts you have or behaviors you have are not, they're, they're almost never a sign of a mental illness. And this is what Mm -hmm. some leaders have said. They're all going to have PTSD. No, they're not. No, we know, we know from other major disasters, some people have long lasting effects but most people do not. And mm-hmm. banging the drum and insisting that people act like nothing's unusual is not the right thing to do. Staying connected is great. Um, mm-hmm. Cutting people slack, giving them grace, including yourself, um, is, is really a very important thing that leaders can be doing right now. Okay. So if I'm listening to this video and I'm thinking, okay, I want to learn more. How do I learn whether I need to turn up my dial or turn it down for the courage piece, the judgment piece or the fortitude? Where do I start? Well, um, the first, the first place that most people start is, or well, let me back up. The first place most people think they start is in their head, <laughs> but where most okay. of us start is more in our guts. It's okay. more a feeling of, um, you know, I don't know. I used to be so confident and, and sure of my strengths as a leader. And now I'm feeling like I'm on quicksand. Okay. You are. <laughs> okay. Well done. You, you are. And so if your guts are a little churny sometimes, um, or if you have, as you said, that roller coaster, that change curve, by the way, is complete garbage. It's not oh, true. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's just, it's not, it doesn't <laughs> work it's like nice that. on a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> well, a lot of consulting firms swiped the early work of Kubler-Ross and said, this is a change curve. And even she herself said mm-hmm. that that was not, that's not, it is definitely more, yeah. um, and doesn't, doesn't go in sequence. Um, and and so what? What? Where? Sorry, where were we? <laughs> we were talking about. You can edit starting, this out. <laughs> we were starting on the inside, starting on the outside. Where do I go with the courage, judgment, and fortitude? Um, well, it's once you realize that you're feeling a little bit um, not like yourself, or even if you're just curious, maybe you feel fine and, and you you feel completely competent as you did you know, six months ago. Um, but you say, I want to be a better leader. Um, the first thing to do is to ask yourself, and and there's questions in the book about, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're rate yourself questions. These are not meant to diagnose you. What they're meant to do is create self-reflection. The second thing to do is to attempt to validate your self-perception. And this is where people range very widely on how accurately they understand themselves and how they affect other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely a Lake Wobegon effect here where okay. most leaders think that they have tremendous um, self insight and understanding of how they affect other people. Well, it can't be true that most people are like that, but nonetheless, uh, the research done by uh, Tasha Ulrich yes. um, for her book, um, Insight, her research shows that, you know, most people think they're above average. So 
there's a, there's two ways to validate that, that leap to mind for me. One is by getting feedback from others and getting it yourself, by the way, is not going to get you. <laughs> you're going to get some information if you ask yourself, but you're going to get different information mm-hmm. uh, than you would if a professional person who does this using interviews, not some schlocky survey tool that only gives you a one through five rating. Not that I'm opinionated. Um, (laughs) Get some really rich um, feedback. The second is to make a list of all the big decisions you've made in your life. Yeah. And then write down. So those go on one side of the page and on the other side of the page, what were the outcomes of those decisions with as little defense as possible? So, well, that acquisition we did was really awful, but you know, we had an activist investor who made us do it, which might be true by the way. Um, and so the thing that, that we do in our memories, this is a smart people doing stupid things. It's a human thing is that we don't remember things as they happened. This is not Memorex. This is a highly creative <laughs> part of our, our, it's our mind really more than our brain. Um, yes. but if you go back and say, um, okay, someone asked me earlier today, so your decision to stop being a stockbroker, go back to school, spend all those years in school. And now you're a consultant. How did that work out? And I said, it's been great, but it was hard. Yes. It took a long time. Um, but you know, certainly I've made other decisions in my life that were, you know, not so brilliant. We we won't talk about those. (laughs) Well, maybe for a different conversation, but I've heard it described that there are four truths out there. There's yours, there's mine, there's ours, and then there's the truth. And it just depends on whether we're willing and able to look at it from all different perspectives and learn from it. But yeah. It's not a role play. I mean, that takes courage. You know, see, see how it comes. It comes back to, um, to, to have the courage to say, you know, how do I show up as a leader? How do I affect other people? And even in our own families, you know, to, we're all spending more time together now and, and there is an opportunity there. And there, you know, there, there is some teeth gnashing too in most normal homes, but there's an opportunity to say, you know, I realized when you asked me what time we were having dinner that I snapped at you. And, um, in hindsight, I think that was kind of, I was kind of sharp and unkind, you know, how did you receive that? And it opens up the possibility. And actually when you do that with, someone that loves you that you can count on for a good conversation. That is one way you build up your muscle of being courageous with other people at work. Well, I love it. I mean, when I reread the book over the weekend, I think it resonated for me just how pertinent it is for everybody right now. Because whether you're a leader in an organization or to your description, a leader in a family or a leader in a community, there are insights here that I think are going to be invaluable for whatever the future unfolds over the next few weeks and months. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. That's, that's really great to hear because I wanted to write a book that would have value over time. Yeah, definitely. So Constance, how do people get a hold of the book and how do they get a hold of you? 
Well, they can order the book from Amazon or they can order it from, um, CEO reads or, you know, mm-hmm. one of the, one of the standard, um, places. It's also available on audible. Uh, mm-hmm. the book, the book was read by uh, a lovely voice actress with a British accent. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, did you get a voice double? Okay. Uh, no, I did not get a voice double. Uh, they let me pick though. They gave me three options yeah. and I just like the sound of her voice so they can listen to it. Um, okay. and then I can be found by just Googling my name, which when you Google Constance Derricks, because Derricks has such an unusual, it's Belgian and that's how they spell it in Belgium. But mm-hmm. in the US, it's very unusual. I'm the only one. And my website yeah. is myname.com. Okay. We'll make sure that everybody gets a copy of that. And please put your comments uh, below the video. Tell us about how you've applied the high stakes leadership skills in your world and in your environment. And please reach out to Constance. Make sure you order a copy of her book and please be an ally and write a review. And it makes a difference for all of us. But Constance, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure to reconnect. I look forward to coming back and talking about your new book in the next video. Yes. That one. Thank you so much. 